John chapter 14, the first three verses. Here's what God's word has to say to us. These are the words of Jesus. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have, uh, would I have told you that. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Several weeks ago, I shared with you that the reason why I'm preaching this series of sermons focused on the gospel is in part because my heart is troubled. I've lost some friends of late um, to, to COVID that I had shared the gospel with many times, and they had heard the gospel and rejected the gospel, thinking they had plenty of time, thinking that they had many more years to live, and then unexpectedly and very quickly, they became sick and died, and I'm fearful that they stepped into the reality of eternity without the blessing of salvation, and that troubles my heart. Now, the reality of it is I would guess that all of us in this room have something we can point to that is troubling us today. In the general sense, I would imagine there's not a family here today that's not been in some way impacted by COVID. You know somebody, either personally, uh, who is in your family, or a friend who's either been made sick, who has um, physically been diminished because of COVID or tragically lost their lives. And, and, and the loss of life with COVID has been, it's been pretty heavy. So in, in, in families, in fact, the, the, in, in recent days, I have heard of families where husbands and, and, and grandfathers and children and, and many, several members of the same family have succumbed to, to death because of COVID. And that, my friends, is by very definition troubling. And then you add to that just the, the other things, wars and rumors of wars, the, 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 the reality of politics today, the, the context of divisiveness and the heat of that divisiveness in our, in our world today. There's a lot of things to be troubled. Historically troubled times drew Christians to think about, sing about, preach about, to talk about heaven more. And I think that's because when you have a biblical worldview of heaven and you're faced with the troubled of, troubles of this world, your heart just longs all the more for the promises of heaven to be made true, to be experienced, to be known. But I want to make the case today that if your view of heaven is not from a biblical understanding, but rather from a secular understanding. And I'm going to make the case that the secular understanding of heaven is really just a world like the one we live in, just a little bit better. There's no reason to hope in that. And particularly when you consider the great brokenness of this world, that kind of heaven doesn't sound good at all. The Pew Research uh, does the Pew Research Foundation does research on religion in America. They do a big study called the Religious Landscape 
uh, study. Um, yeah, I thought it was interesting. The last one they came out with, there's, there's numbers for, they asked the question, do you believe in a heaven and do you believe in a hell? And there's no surprise here. More people believed in heaven than they do in hell, which makes total sense to me. If you don't know Jesus and you're considering which one do you want to give credence to, uh, eternal condemnation or eternal bliss? Well, I'm going with eternal bliss if I can, if I can make a choice. It was interesting to me how they defined what they meant by heaven and hell. When they defined heaven, they said, do you believe in a place where people who have led good lives are eternally rewarded? Well, that gives it open to a lot of things, doesn't it? I don't know anybody who doesn't think about uh, the people they like and the people that they, that they are related to as good people. I heard a quote um, this weekend, it was an amazing quote to me. It was a guy, he was talking about his father who was a murderer, who was a, a, a swindler and a thief and uh, did all kinds of despicable things. And he was trying to say, but his, his father was a good husband and a good father. And he said, this is the quote. He said, my dad was a, he was a good husband. Now, if you don't count the adultery, he was a great husband and a good man trying to define wickedness as good. In the judgment of man, no one deserves hell except maybe those who are your enemies, and everyone deserves heaven, especially those who are friends and family. Most often when the world thinks about heaven, it's disconnected from a biblical teaching of heaven. In popular culture, heaven is generally reduced to the present world just being a little bit better and maybe being a little bit more exaggerated. So whatever annoyed you on this earth will be no more. And whatever you like to do on earth will be greater. I, I have heard it. You have heard it as well. People talk about somebody who's died, and they'll talk about um, them in heaven enjoying whatever they enjoyed in this earth. So they were a fisherman. They'll say, well, they're enjoying that great lake in the sky where the fish are always biting. Heaven being presented as a world like the one we live in, just a little bit better than today. In all these imaginations of heaven, the focus and purpose of heaven is entirely focused on man. You get to do what you like to do. Your life is better there. Your mind is better there. Your body is better there. Your hobbies are better there. Your pleasures are better there. Your things that you pursue are better there. And friends, I want to make the case this morning that that is not the heaven of the Bible. And I want to make the case that that heaven is not a heaven that produces hope. The real heaven, the biblical heaven, is the only heaven that produces hope. When we understand the biblical understanding of heaven, I think we will discover that it is exponentially greater than anything that flows from the mind of man. And so today, I want you to see two very simple, but I think eternally profound truths about heaven that Jesus teaches us in this passage. Just two this morning. Here they are. Number one, there is a real heaven because heaven is a, uh, there is a real heaven and therefore heaven is a real hope for us. There is a real heaven defined by God and therefore it is a real hope for us in the context of a broken and troubled world. And then secondly, the focus and the glory and the joy of heaven is dwelling in the presence of God, which I want to make much of this morning because I think that's the weight behind the entirety of this, of this passage. But let's begin 
with the foundational truth that there is a real heaven, therefore there is real hope. And that comes from the first two verses that we read in chapter 14. So Jesus starts by saying, don't, let, don't, don't give your hearts to trouble. Don't give your hearts to trouble. It's amazing how much things change and yet how much they stay the same. We have very, very little that connects us to the world, the culture, the context of those to which Jesus was speaking. Their economy was different. Their social structure was different. Everything about their world was different. And yet the very same thing is they understood the trouble of this world just like we do. They laid their heads down on their pillows at night with the same worries and concerns that you and I do. And Jesus says to them, don't give your hearts to trouble. Don't give your hearts to trouble, but, but rather believe in God, believe also in me. And then this is the reason. So instead of being troubled, believe in God. And then the hope behind that belief is in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you uh, that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, this may seem oversimplistic to you, but sometimes I think simple things need to be made clear. And that is there is specific promise here that heaven is real. We believe in the reality, in the place of heaven, because Jesus declared it to be so. Sometimes you can get so thick and so deep in theological arguments that you miss the more simple truths. Why do we believe in hell? Because Jesus said there was a hell. Why do we believe in a heaven? Because Jesus said there was a heaven. And we believe Jesus. That's the foundational truth for us this morning. Our hope in heaven is not built on fantasy. It's not built on mythology. It's not even built on wishing. Our hope in heaven is founded on the declaration of Jesus. If we are to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, who saves us from our sins, how then can we then reject what he taught us about heaven and hell? We have said we believe he is the Son of God who stepped out of the glory of heaven into the humility of the flesh of this earth, died on the cross, perfect without sin, so that we might believe in him and be saved by his sacrifice on the cross. We have said we believe that if we die in this world, we will live in eternity. We have said we believe because the Bible declares that Jesus is coming back. Therefore, how much more should we not believe that there is a real heaven and there is a real hell. We must take the whole word of God, not just what is okay with popular opinion. If we deny heaven, we deny hell. If we deny hell, we deny heaven. And if we deny either, we ultimately deny the whole of the gospel. So here Jesus makes a very plain statement. Heaven is real. So what he says in verse two, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. In other words, I, I'm not lying to you is what Jesus says. I would not have told you I'm going to make preparation for you if this was not a real place and a real hope. We believe in the reality of heaven not because we can prove it scientifically or because someone claims to have been there and come back. We believe in the reality of heaven because Jesus said it is real. He was there before descending to earth and he is there now preparing for us. Now, the lost person may say to you, this is not enough proof. And I would say to them, indeed, ultimately, it comes down to a matter and an issue of faith. To be saved, we must believe on the Lord Jesus. 
that he is the son of God and that he died and rose again for our sins. And therefore, when we think about heaven, it also is an issue of faith. We believe it because we believe Jesus. Now, if you're hearing me today and you don't know the Lord, you're lost in your sin. I want you to hear the good word of Christ. The good word of Christ is that he desires your presence with him eternally. And the hope of the gospel is that God has made a way through Jesus for wicked and vile sinners to be made right and dwell with him for eternity. That is the good word of the real heaven. If you're here today and you're a believer, then I want you to hear these encouraging words of, of Christ that though these present days may be hard and difficult and filled with all kinds of bitter sorrows, there is hope that our future in the presence of the Lord will make the sorrows of this present moment a faint, faint shadow. I don't know what it is that is keeping you up at night. It may be a deep and, and scary reality. It may be harsh and bitter sorrows. But I know this, that the heaven that Jesus speaks about here is real. And when believers experience that real heaven in eternity, it will make the brief mist of our lives here and all the sufferings and the hardships and the troubles that we have known here fade and seem inconsequential. And that's why Jesus says, don't give your heart to trouble. Don't give your heart to trouble. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I'm preparing a place for you. So notice it's a specific um, uh, a promise and a specific work. Jesus begins with a command not to let your heart be troubled. Then, uh, there, there was then, and there is certainly now, many things that could cause a person's heart to be troubled in the context. And so the people that Jesus is speaking to, they understood the reality of physical decline, sickness, and death. In fact, they understood, uh, even in the context of death, uh, the reality of death at the hands of those who were opposing them simply because they were followers of Jesus. They understood threats to their personal safety. They understood the uncertainty of government stability uh, and oppression. They lived. Jesus was speaking to a people who were living as oppressed and occupied people from a foreign government. They understood the presence of wickedness. The command is not just to not be worried. I don't know if you've ever had an experience where you were worried about something, you were anxious about something, you were troubled about something, and you told somebody about your trouble and their good advice to you was, well, just don't be worried about it anymore. Stop being troubled. Stop being anxious. And I, if you've heard that, I, I'm pretty sure it didn't help a whole lot, right? Because if your heart is anxious, if your heart is troubled, if your heart is concerned about something, somebody just declaring to you will stop being that way doesn't do much to alleviate the trouble, the worry, the anxiety of your heart. So notice here, the command is not just to, just to not be worried or troubled. The command is to believe instead of being troubled. So there's, there's an there's a opposite reaction. Instead of giving yourself to trouble, troubled heart, worried heart, concerned heart, instead of giving yourself into that, rather give yourself to belief. Believe God. Believe Jesus. 
Stop being troubled. Start believing. Believe that there is a heaven and that Jesus is presently, intentionally, specifically working to prepare it for the redeemed. Now, I don't know about for you, but this is a pretty marvelous thought to me. That not only is heaven a real place, but right now, the attention and the work of the eternal Savior Jesus is to prepare it for the saints for eternity. Now, to be honest, I don't know what the fullness of that means. What does that mean when Jesus says he's preparing the place? I don't know, but I know it's going to be good. Now, don't be distracted by the word that's oftentimes that's translated in the ESV as dwelling places or many rooms. There has been a host of really bad theology built on that. So, uh, the old King James talked about mansions. And, the, and that word, ma- that translation of mansions has led to all kinds of things where people focus more on the house than the master of the house. I was having a senior adult luncheon one time at First Baptist Adel. And we had a, a lady come in who was going to sing for the program. And she, she started, she introduced the next song she was about to sing with these words. She says, now the song I'm about to sing, my pastor told me was bad theology and I ought not to sing it anymore. But I like the song, I'm going to sing it anyway. And then she proceeded to sing a song about how heaven for her was going to be a little cabin isolated off in the woods, just her and herself by herself in heaven. And when she got done, I thought, indeed, it was bad theology. She ought not have sung it. And it has nothing to do with a biblical worldview of heaven. The point, the point of the specific work of Jesus preparing heaven for us is that he is preparing it for us to dwell with God. The point of what Jesus is teaching is not about us, but about God. He is preparing for us to be with him. God desires for us to dwell with him. This is not for us to go and enjoy something that we've imagined to be good on this earth. This is for us to go and be in the real heaven that God has prepared for real saints to be with a real God in real fellowship for real eternity. Somebody say amen. So we talk about a real hope. But then secondly, I want you to see, and this is, the, this is the foundational hope of heaven, and that is that there is real presence. Find all of this in verse 3. Jesus says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. There's hopeful words there. And will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. There's a real place that I'm specifically working to prepare for you, and here's the ultimate hope, that when I return, I'm going to gather you and bring you to be in, a, in the presence, dwelling with me for eternity. That where I am, Jesus says, you may be also. Just a couple of things here about the real presence of God. First of all, 
We think about heaven, it is defined first by God's nature. Much of man's ideas about heaven are simply a better earth. We've talked about that. And so we'll talk about eating lavish food or lavish homes. We'll talk about the absence of consequences for our pleasure or sometimes even living life as we think would be most pleasurable. And in all of these things, heaven is pictured as a more perfect earth. So I, I mentioned the, the lady who sang about her little cabin in the woods. I guess for her, that was a more perfect idea. How opposite could it be from a biblical understanding? What does Jesus say here? Heaven is about you being with me. She's singing about a, a, a cabin isolated from everybody else. That's not the biblical idea of heaven. Scripture says little about the details of heaven as a physical place, and I think this is intentional because I don't think any of us can comprehend the glory of heaven. You and I are restricted to the language and the things that we know. But I think the glory of heaven will be so great and so beyond anything we know that, frankly, we just don't have language to describe it. Our hope is not in a better earth, but in the perfection of God's glory. We do not want a better earth. We want a perfect heaven. Do you understand that everything that we know on this side of earth has been tarnished and stained by sin? And so when we think about the perfection of heaven, we really have no reference here. So everything we know has been st uh, stained and tarnished by sin. So our work and our effort, many of us see work as something negative, as something unpleasant, and yet I think in heaven our work will be unrestrained from the unpleasantries of this world. We've never known that kind of work. This side of heaven, our activities, our, our pleasures, our bodies, our minds, our emotions, all of those things have been tarnished by the reality of a sinful world. You think about even your most intimate, your most precious relationship this side of heaven. Maybe that's with your spouse. I hope that's with your spouse. And even in those relationships, there's sin there. There's arrogance, there's selfishness, there's hurt. You've said some things to your spouse that have wounded. You've acted selfishly toward your spouse because even the most precious, cherished, wonderful relationships we have this side of heaven, all, everything is stained by sin. Jesus is preparing a place for the saints to enjoy the perfection of a perfect God. God is without sin. God is without corruption. God is without brokenness. What keeps us from the presence of God is the fact that we sin. We are corrupted. We are broken. And if we are to dwell in the presence of God, we cannot be sinful, corrupted, or broken. And that's the hope of the gospel, that through the work of Jesus, through the transformation of the gospel, sinners are made saints. The broken are made whole. The corrupt are made pure. The nature of heaven is defined by the nature of God, meaning it will be perfect. It will be sinless. It will not be corrupted, and it will not be broken. 
And ultimately, friends, here it is. The focus of heaven will be the presence of God. There are two things that tend to be overly emphasized when we think about or talk about heaven. It's not that they're wrong. I think they're just overly emphasized. We've already, maybe a third one would be the mansions, though I think that's just built on misunderstanding of this text. But the things that typically are overemphasized are what we'll experience physically. So what it'll be like in glorified bodies that no longer know death, pain, or suffering. And we oftentimes overemphasize the, the goodness and the glory of being reunited with family and friends. Now, will we have glorified bodies that no longer know pain and suffering and sickness? The answer to that is yes. Will, be, will we be reunited with family and friends who knew Jesus and died in the faith? The answer to that is yes. And will those two things be good? Yes. But I want to press you further this morning and say that is not the hope or the, 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 the focus of heaven. That's not what makes heaven good, though those things are certainly good. Heaven is more than just enjoying glorified bodies. We will, we will have bodies that will never die. We will enjoy bodies that will no longer be under the curse of sin. But glorified bodies is not the reason Jesus gives here for why our hearts ought not to be troubled. He doesn't say, don't let your hearts be troubled. Someday your knees are no longer going to hurt. <laughs> he doesn't say, don't, don't be troubled. Someday when you work in the yard, you won't have to take Tylenol in the afternoon to recover from it. Praise God. He doesn't say, don't let your hearts be troubled. Someday, 80 and 90 and 100 years old won't be old at all because you'll be living in eternity. That's not the reason Jesus says for our hearts not to be troubled. We'll certainly have glorified bodies, but that's not the hope of heaven. And dear friends, heaven is more than a family reunion. We will be reunited with the saints who have died in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that we will be known as we were, no, we, we were known. And so in heaven, we'll know each other. And that'll be good as we rejoice with one another in the presence of the Lord. But the reunion of the saints is not the reason that Jesus gives for our, why our hearts ought not to be troubled. He doesn't say, don't let your hearts be troubled. Someday you're going to see your mom again. He doesn't say, don't let your hearts be troubled. Someday you're going to see your your, your spouse again. Now, is that not going to be good? The answer to that is yes. But that's not why we have the hope of heaven, nor is that the answer to why our hearts are not troubled. We are saved first and foremost for the glory of God. And in heaven, our first and foremost purpose will be to glorify God. The focus and the hope of heaven will not be about enjoying our glorified bodies or being with loved ones. Our focus and the glory of heaven will be on the glory of God alone. Our attention will be throne focused. Our eternal continual worship will be the Lamb of God focus. What will occupy our attention in heaven will not be earthly relationships, but the very presence of the living God. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Now, for, with me for just a minute, I want us to take a step back and think about the entirety of Scripture. In Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve were created to dwell with God unrestricted in his presence, and it was good. 
From Genesis 3, when sin entered the world, the very first thing that Adam and Eve did is they hid from the presence of God because they were no longer able to stay in the presence of God because of the shamefulness of their sins. And from Genesis 3 to this very moment, we have been separated from God because of that sin. Shameful, broken, corrupted. If you think about all the places in Scripture where either God shows up or sometimes even his messenger shows up, it freaks out God's people. When God's people are confronted with the messengers of God, the angels of God, just the glory that they exude is overwhelming to those who are in their presence, oftentimes falling down. Gideon thought he was about to die. All of those because they, because they beheld just a glimmer of the, the glory of God, not God directly, but by one of his messengers. You may remember Moses was not able to, to, to even be, uh, to fully, f- to face God. And, and even when he dwelt with the Lord, the Bible says that when he came down off the mountain after receiving the, the Ten Commandments, that he glowed. He had residual glowing because he had been in the presence of the Lord. And you would think, I mean, just thinking about it now, you think that'd be amazing. It freaked out the people. In fact, it scared them. So much so that they begged him to put a veil over his face because even the residual glow of the glory of God that Moses had not even seen directly was too frightening for the people on the, on the, in the valley to behold. Now fast forward all the way to the hope of heaven. What does Jesus say? Don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm preparing a place for you. Those of you who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus that you won't behold the glory of my angels. And you won't glow from standing backwards in the passing of the glory of God. No, you will be where I am, in my presence. That's the focus. That's the hope of heaven to dwell in the unrestricted, unlimited, um, unredacted, unfiltered uh, presence of the glory of God forever and ever and ever and ever. Revelation 4 says that at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne and one sat there, had the, the appearance of Jasper and and around the throne was a, was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne there was burning seven torches of fire, which were seven spirits of God. Notice in that passage eight times or, or, or more that the word was throne was used because the focus of glory is not each other. The focus of glory is not our bodies. The focus of glory is the presence of the living God amongst his people. Everything we do in heaven will be focused on the Lord. Our worship, our singing, our prayer, every part of what we do will be on the glory of God. And I think, friends, when you begin to even get a glimmer of a taste of that hope, It changes everything. That's why Jesus is able to say, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Because the hope of the gospel is that through the work of the redemption of Jesus, your future is to be in the presence of God for eternity.
this summer, my family and I had the opportunity to enjoy a week in Orlando at Disney World. Now, when you go to Disney World, there's a lot of eye-catching resort-type stuff even before you get into the parks. When you're driving into, onto the property, no matter which way you come in, 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 in all the roads leading to Disney, there are these massive over-the-road um, banners that you drive under. It has, has imagery of all the characters on them. And any of you who've gone to Disney World and you post about it on Facebook or Twitter, that's what you put. You put a picture as you're driving under those things. Hey, we're, we're at Disney World. That's an exciting moment. Kids see it and go, yay, we know we're here. When you get to the parking lot, as a kid, the one thing I remember most about Disney World as a kid is how excited I was to get on those little trams that, that pick you up at your car and drive you to the front gate. I mean, it was just cool as a kid to jump on those things and ride. But, but even before you get into the park, there are other things that you can do that, that are just fascinating. So um, the, many of you remember the old monorail that still to this, this day in 2021 still looks futuristic and cool as it glides overhead monorail train taking you between the parks. There are gondolas, these open air um, things that, that, that glide through the air on the cables that can take you from park, I mean, from, from resort to park to park to park. Uh, there, there's uh, there's uh, river boats and water taxis that can take you across the lake. There's all kinds of interesting, fascinating things that you can experience even before you walk into one of the parks. Now imagine with me, if I had taken my family down to Orlando this year and we had ridden the tram in the parking lot and we got off the tram, the kids said, oh, that was awesome. I'm like, yeah, I know. I remember that as a kid and it's still pretty fun. And then we, we, we got on the monorail and we rode everywhere the monorail went. We all said, oh, that's, that's pretty cool too. That was pretty neat. Then we got on the gondolas and we rode the gondolas wherever they took us to all the different uh, hotels and to the, all the different uh, park entrances. And we all said, man, that, that was pretty neat too. And then, then one last thing, we, we rode the, 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 the riverboat and then the water taxis. And then when we got done with all that, we said, man, Disney World was awesome. And we came home. Now imagine as we're telling you, some of you, you ask us about our trip and we said, oh man, You'll know, if you've not been down there, the monorail is amazing. Oh, it really is amazing. And you're like, oh, okay, that's nice. And then we said, but, but if, you, if you can't ride the monorail, I mean, you know, we, we did it all. So we also rode the, the gondolas and oh, great views up there. You're like, oh, okay, that's great. And then we told you about the water taxi and then the, the, um, the, the, the boat that takes you across. We told you about all that stuff. Even told you about the little tram that rode you through the parking lot. And, and even we showed you a picture of how when we were driving under the big banners, how we took a picture of that. At some point, you, with somewhat concern, you might say, did y'all go in the park? And I'd say, well, we, got, we went through the park. We rode the monorail. I told you about that. And rode the gondolas. I told you about that and the tram. And you would say, yeah, but did you go in the park? And I'd say, get up. Yeah, we went right up to it, man. And we ran, and you would eventually say, brother, you missed it. And I'd say, no, we saw fascinating things. And you'd say, well, yes, but they were better things. They were much better things. In fact, then you actually missed the whole point. You just went to the parking lot 
He never actually went in and enjoyed the park. Friends, I think a lot of you, when you think about heaven, you're talking about parking lot stuff. Fishing where the fish always bite. Even bodies that never hurt, that's parking lot stuff. Family reunion, parking lot stuff. Oh, it's good. It's going to be good. But the real hope of heaven isn't the neat things you do in the parking lot. It's going through the gate and being in the presence of the Lord. What gives you hope in the context of a broken and troubled world are not glorified bodies and family reunions. What gives you hope is a real reunion with the God who created you and loves you. The real thing that gives you hope in the context of a world that is broken apart is that God has promised in the, in, the, in, in the work of the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross and the fulfillment of that in heaven is that everything that sin broke in Genesis 3 will be made right and restored again in the hope of heaven. Don't be distracted. Don't be distracted by the world's depiction of heaven. And don't even be distracted by the good things that are not the main thing of heaven. The main thing, the real hope, is that where Jesus is, we can be. Where God dwells, we will dwell. Don't settle for a cabin in the woods. The hope of heaven is being in the house of God. Don't settle for good things. The hope of heaven is dwelling in the presence of the living God. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.